Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome, everyone, to this Federalist Society webinar. As this afternoon, April 12th, 2022, we're hearing about uh, a recently published book last year, I believe. And we're calling this episode Talks with Authors, John Fisher and Thomas Moore, Keeping Their Souls While Losing Their Heads. Uh, this book was written by Judge Robert Conrad. Uh, he's, he's joining us today. I'm just going to do a, a very brief introduction here, and then we'll get started. So I'm Nick Marr, Assistant Director of Practice Groups here at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that expressions of opinion on our call today are those of our expert. We're going to have some discussion of the book between the moderator and uh, the book's author. We'll be looking to you, the audience, for your questions towards the end of the program. Um, so do submit those via the chat as we go along so we can get to them um, at that point. I'll also be sending a discount code. I believe it's 25% off and free shipping um, on the publisher's website. If you'd like to order this book after the program, I'll be sending that uh, in the chat as well. So we're very pleased to be joined uh, today. I was moderating this discussion, Professor William Saunders. He's a professor at the Catholic University of America, co-director of the Center for Religious Liberty, and a fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology. He's also the chairman of our Religious Liberties Practice Group. Um, with that, Bill, thanks very much for being with us. The floor is yours. Thanks, Nick. Uh, welcome to those who are joining. I wanna say, uh, as chairman of the FedSox, Religious Liberty Practice Group, that if you're interested in this uh, general subject of religious liberties, join our practice group. Uh, we'd love to have you. It's my uh, privilege today to introduce uh, a longtime friend of mine, uh, Judge Robert Conrad from the U.S. District Court for the Western District of North Carolina. Uh, Judge Conrad was an outstanding student at Clemson University and an outstanding athlete. Um, after Clemson, he attended the University of Virginia, got his law degree there. And uh, as I say, he now lives in Charlotte, North Carolina with his wife, Anne, and their five children and uh, 10 grandchildren. Um, I also wanna say before we start that Judge, Judge Conrad is, is uh, a man of many talents. I won't say a man for all seasons, but a man of many talents. And he's uh, spearheading right now uh, something in the federal courts, uh, what's called the Virginia Revival Courtroom, which is a way of setting up the courtroom that's, that goes back to colonial times and puts the jury in the center of attention. I've seen his courtroom in Charlotte, and it's fascinating to see uh, how it could affect the dynamics of courtroom advocacy. And I know he has a law review article coming out I think it's in the Duke Law Journal, either now, it's already come out or it's coming out very soon if you want to learn more about that. But today we want to talk about his book, uh, which I hold up here for you to see, John Fisher and Thomas Moore, Keeping Their Souls While Losing Their Heads, uh, a book that I've read, and it's, it's, it's just, it's full of uh, wonderful things, some of which we will explore today. And uh, Judge, before you start, um, why don't you tell us where you're coming to us from? It looks like a nice library. I wish it were my library. Uh, 
it, it actually is a Photoshop picture of the library of John Henry Newman, who was a 19th century theologian and author. And um, I just think it looks a lot better than my messy uh, chambers. And so um, I'm trying to get every advantage I can in talking to such an august group as this. Well, why don't you tell us, tell us about the book? Give us, give, uh, give us an intro for those who haven't heard of it before. So it's a book about two 16th century figures, uh, John Fisher and Thomas More. Thomas More, of course, is uh, the more well-known of the two figures, uh, being the subject of Robert Bolt's uh, incredible play, A Man for All Seasons, that was later turned into an Oscar-winning movie. Moore's famous line is that he died the king's good servant, but God's first. And that's sort of the uh, motivation for the book. John Fisher was a contemporary of Moore's, and he, too, was a, a man of uh, extreme talent. He was a bishop in the Catholic Church in England. He was also a chaplain to the mother of the king. He was chancellor of Cambridge. Uh, university and a member of the upper parliament. Both men uh, were executed for their refusal to go against their conscience and sign an oath uh, inconsistent with their their beliefs. And they uh, their lives resonate uh, with me. Uh, maybe to come at this book from a motivation standpoint, I would uh, quote. Father Paul Scalia, who uh, eulogized his father, the late great Justice uh, Scalia, and among the many beautiful things he, he said about uh, his father, he said this, he said, God blessed dad as is well known with a love for his country. He knew well what a close run thing the founding of our nation was. And he saw in that founding as did the founders themselves, a blessing a blessing quickly lost when faith is banned from the public square or when we refuse to bring it there. So he understood that there is no conflict between loving God and loving one's country, between one's faith and one's public service. Dad understood that the deeper he went in his Catholic faith, the better a citizen and public servant he became. God blessed him with the desire to be the country's good servant because he was God's first. And that, of course, sounds something like Thomas Moore would have said and, in fact, did say. And in any event, I couldn't say it better, although I tried to do just that with the with the book. And so the question might become, why would a federal judge in the middle of a pandemic, uh, in the middle of a courthouse construction uh, project, with a busy docket and a desire to see 10 grandkids spend time uh, writing a book about two 16th century figures. And uh, it's because I, I believe in the power of a well-told story to communicate truth. I know when I was growing up as a trial lawyer, uh, the advocacy advice I was given by a famous trial lawyer, Terry McCarthy, the uh, longtime public defender in Chicago, he would tell trial lawyers that when they got up to speak to a jury, uh, that they should stand up, clear their throat, straighten their tie, and then say to themselves, once upon a time, 
And I know that as a, as a grandkid, when I sit on a grandfather, when I sit on a couch and grandchildren want me to tell them a story, if I, I start out with the line, once upon a time, I have their attention. And so Bill, if it's all right with you, I'll, I'll tell this story and then uh, try to uh, focus on some of the, the deeper truths that lie behind the, the story. So once upon a time at the beginning of the 16th century, uh, the kings of England and Spain decided to expand their kingdoms by marrying off their children. And so Arthur, the two-year-old Prince of Wales in England was betrothed to Catherine, the three-year-old daughter of the King of Spain. And it seemed to be a good deal for both families by marrying Arthur, the heir apparent to the throne of England, Catherine became its future queen. And for King Henry VII, his son's marriage to Catherine meant that he could extend England's rule across the channel. And so in 1501, Catherine, now a teenager, came to England and finally met and married the 14-year-old Arthur. Uh, sadly, the sickly Arthur died five months uh, later, probably from a, a virus similar in many ways to the coronavirus of today. And Catherine would maintain throughout her life that the marriage was never consummated. And this is where our story begins. In 1509, uh, Henry VII died. And Arthur's younger brother, Harry, became king of England, known to us as Henry VIII. And in one of his first kingly acts, he married his brother's widow, Ka widow Catherine. And he even got a papal dispensation to remove any impediment to their marriage because of his wife's prior betrothal to Arthur. And in the eyes of God, as declared by the Pope, the couple's marriage was valid. King Henry and Queen Catherine would live together amicably for close to 20 years, and several children were born of their marriage, but only one, a girl, Mary, survived. And over that period of time, Henry VIII veered towards self-indulgence. He overate, overplayed, and slept around. His wandering eyes settled on Anne Boleyn, one of Catherine's maids, and the sister of Mary Boleyn, a woman with whom he had previously had an affair. Henry's other obsession was to bear a male heir, and these two obsessions combined in his mind to the extent that he thought of little else other than how to, how to divorce Catherine, marry Anne Boleyn, and conceive a son. And this became known as the king's great matter. Henry was determined to get his way and to have others ratify his conduct as proper. And at his initiative, Parliament passed two bills. The first one was the Act of Succession, which declared any offspring of Anne Boleyn to be the rightful heir to the throne. And conversely, that any children of his first wife, Catherine, uh, were deemed illegitimate. And this was soon followed by an oath required of all nobles and bishops. And then the second act Parliament passed was the Act of Treason, which made it treasonous to speak maliciously against any of the king's titles, including his title as Supreme Head of the Church of uh, England. So that's the story in the background to the courageous stands taken by Bishop John Fisher and Lord Th Chancellor Thomas More. As to the legitimacy of the first marriage, having granted a dispensation for the marriage to Catherine, the Pope was not inclined to annul it. 
And after years of study, both Moore and Fisher concluded in their own consciences that the papacy was divinely instituted by Christ and had the power to declare upon the legitimacy of the marriage. Each refused to sign the required oath, it being against their conscience. And later they would be executed on trumped up charges that they had spoken maliciously against the king's title as supreme head of the Church of England. In reality, both men were loyal servants of the king, but they were more than that. They were holy men determined to stand for truth, for the divine institution of the papacy, and ultimately for the hope of eternal life. With the passage of time, they were recognized for their heroic lives and deaths. Both are considered saints and share feast days. Recognized on June 22nd in the Catholic Church, which is the anniversary of Fisher's beheading, and on July 6th in the Anglican, Anglican Church, which is the anniversary of Moore's beheading. But uh, that's background to two uh, essential events I want to talk about uh, in a six-year period between the time of 1529 and uh, 1535 in England. In 1529, two very significant things happened. Uh, the first was that in the uh, king's efforts to orchestrate a divorce and a remarriage, he had gotten uh, the, the papacy to agree to have a hearing in England, saving Henry the expense and time and possible embarrassment and humiliation of going to Rome to get his uh, annulment. And instead, Rome sent two representatives uh, to England to conduct a hearing in the Great Hall. And so this hearing is the first thing I want to discuss uh, today. It's called a legatine hearing. It was presided over by two cardinals of the Catholic Church. It was attended by every noble and every bishop in the, in the realm. And the two principal players were King Henry VIII and his wife, Catherine. And uh, Catherine started out the hearing uh, when she was called into court by going to the king, kneeling in front of him and uh, telling him that she had been a faithful wife, that she had left her country to come to his, to serve him, that she had made his friends, her friends, that she had borne his children and through no fault of her own, uh, those children had died except for the one daughter that she had uh, lived a life of devotion and uh, she begged him not to uh, cut her loose. And then she committed her cause to God and left. And this put the king in an awkward uh, position in front of his the leaders of his country. And so he tried to recover his ground. He, he said to them that his desire for the annulment was not related to any interest in a, another woman, but rather for the realm of England. And he worried about uh, the legitimacy of his heirs and had begun to think that having married his brother's wife, that he had sinned and that his uh, wedding, his marriage was not blessed by God. And he announced to all of the people in the hearing that uh, every bishop in the realm agreed with him on this theological position. Henry being used to being affirmed in everything he said and did 
waited for the silent ascent of the bishops gathered. Instead, he heard one voice calling out from the queen's bench. It was John Fisher and John Fisher said, no, sir, not I. You have not my consent there too. And then the king turned to the archbishop and he didn't have the kind of electronic evidence presentation equipment we have today in our trials, but he had a fistful of affidavits from the bishops. And he turned to the archbishop and he said to the archbishop, waving these affidavits in the air, did you not tell me that every bishop in the realm had confirmed my theological position in this matter? And the archbishop uh, weekly consented to the, the, the king's statement. And again, it was Fisher having stood up to the king, then stand, stands up to his own archbishop. And he says uh, that nothing uh, more untrue has ever been said. I did not sign the affidavit for it was much against my conscience. A very stirring kind of courtroom scene in which a man stands on conscience against all the powers in the kingdom, both uh, temporal and spiritual. And his biographer says this of his words. He says, the effect of Fisher's words must have been breathtaking. And yet they are of a piece with everything we know of the man. No one else in the kingdom would have dared to give the lie in public to the Archbishop of Canterbury and the king. And so this stand on conscience is going to be characteristic of both men. Uh, Moore describes uh, his position to his daughter when his daughter says, well, can't you just believe in your mind one thing and sign something else uh, to, to earn your freedom? And Moore says to his, his daughter that signing an oath against conscience is like a man holding water in his hands. And if he were ever to separate his hands, he would never be able to recover the water uh, that they previously contained. And a man who would be willing to sign an oath against his conscience would never hope to find himself again. And so it really is this remarkable willingness to act consistently with a well-formed conscience that attracts me uh, to both these men. And they're described in Robert Moore's described in Robert Bolt's book as a, a person who had an adamantine sense of his own self. And later he refers to him as, as a hero of uh, selfhood. And my study of these men kind of brought me to a different conclusion as to the source of their of their conscience. Um, I don't think it was a subjective belief in self that is portrayed in and Moore's or Robert Bolt's preface, but more of a, an objective belief in, in eternal truth. And so Bolt registers the emphasis in the phrase, I believe on the pronoun I, as in I believe. <clears throat> and I think that uh, a proper understanding of these two men would register the emphasis on the verb of believe, I believe. And so it's an objective kind of conscience informed by great study. And I would uh, suggest also prayer so that when they reached a point of uh, informed conscience, they were 
perfectly willing uh, to stand on that conscience, whatever came their way. And what came their way was a lengthy period of imprisonment followed by execution, which both men responded to in an amazingly cheerful way. Um, they had studied the scriptures and the church fathers. They had come to an understanding of the matter, uh, which had been consistent with, which was, which with that, that was understood for a thousand years in a thousand places. It was not their truth or the King's truth that they were willing to commit their lives to, but, uh, the truth of, of God is they understood it. It was not the right of self will, but the duty to obey the divine voice within and that divine voice, which they understood to be conscience spoke to them of issues of right and wrong reconciliation, justice, truth, wisdom, sanctity, benevolence, and mercy. Fisher and Moore recognized their respective duty to properly inform their conscience to ascertain the divine voice within, but once informed, they understood their duty to act according uh, to it. And so their lives reflect this uh, pattern of study, uh, coming to an understanding of things and then acting very consistently with their informed conscience. The second thing that happened in 1529 was that the king wanted to name his very close friend, Thomas Moore, Lord Chancellor of England. And Moore was kind of hesitant to take that position. He knew that the king and he disagreed on this great matter. And he was unwilling to subject himself to a position where he served the king in, in there was a matter of such great uh, consequence that they would come uh, to see differently. And he expressed this to the king and the king told him that in my, in my great manner, in my great matter, you should look first to God and after that to me. And it was upon that understanding that Moore accepted their role as Lord Chancellor. But things did not work out according to the agreed upon approach. <clears throat> and uh, the king became insistently more determined not only to divorce Catherine and Mary Ann Boleyn, but also to have everybody in the kingdom sign an oath that he was doing the right thing and that uh, the first marriage was invalid second marriage was valid and that the, the papacy had nothing to say about it. More response to that was to retire as Lord Chancellor, uh, but to remain silent. He believed that the law uh, protected him if he were silent, that under the law, the only thing anyone could uh, conclude from his silence was actually assent. And so um, being a brilliant lawyer, that was his intended uh, result to, to resign from public life and to live out his life in peace with his, uh, with his family. Because of the integrity of both men and the, the watching kingdom of England and the world at large, it was insufficient to Henry for them to remain silent. He required an oath. And both men were imprisoned by Bill of Attainder where Parliament would just say, you're guilty without the necessity of a trial. 
And so both men were imprisoned um, in 1534 with others who refused to sign the oath. And we fast forward to 1535, and I want to talk about a series of trials which began in that year involving three separate sets of people who were in prison for refusing to sign the oath. Because while they were in in prison, Henry had the second act passed, which made it uh, treasonous to maliciously speak against the king's title. Both Moore and Fisher were in prison for life. They were legally dead. They had never spoken against the uh, king's title. And so the king sent interrogators into their cells to uh, trick them into saying something that could be prosecuted under uh, this act. One of the most important parts of the treason statute was that it was only malicious speaking that got you in trouble. Um, And so there were three trials in the summer of 1535. The first trial involved a group of Cartesian monks who had been asked to sign the oath. And when they refused to sign it as being inconsistent with their own monastic oaths, uh, namely that Henry was the head of the Church of uh, England, they were imprisoned and they were brought to trial. And these were men that were not politically active. They were, as I said, monks who led a life of prayer and, and work and stayed out of politics, but found themselves uh, in prison, uh, being tried by a jury uh, for their lives. And their defense was, we didn't sign the oath, not out of malice, but because we're monks. Uh, All we do is pray and work and and concentrate on our vocation. No malice involved at all. In fact, the jury agreed with them and and acquitted the three monks. But when their not guilty verdicts were read in open court, the judges said uh, that the word malice has no meaning, that anything that is said against the king's title is by definition malice. And so this element was, which was put in place intentionally by parliament to protect innocent speaking was read right out of the statute by corrupt uh, judges. And so the jurors were sent back in to deliberate again. And they came back again with a not guilty verdict. Um, Apparently the the just simple humility and integrity of the monks uh, had put the jury in a, a situation where they just would not return a verdict of guilty until they were sent back into the deliberation room for a third time. And this time uh, the prosecutor Cromwell went in and instructed to the jury on what the King wanted in terms of a verdict. And so they came back a third time with guilty verdicts. Uh, which subjected these three monks to capital punishment. And it was said of the jurors that uh, they were ashamed uh, of their verdict from that day forward. That was in uh, the middle of June. The next trial was John Fisher's a few days later. And John Fisher had recently been made a cardinal of the Catholic Church uh, by the Pope, uh, the Pope, uh, 
uh, erroneously concluding that if he added a status to uh, Fisher by making him a cardinal, that it might get him out of trouble in England. And in fact, the opposite happened that Harry's response to the hearing that the cardinal was going to send a red hat to England uh, signifying John Fisher's status as a cardinal. Uh, uh, King Henry said that uh, he can send the hat if he wants, but there won't be a head to put it on. And so John Fisher, the, the bishop slash chancellor of Cambridge, finds himself on trial for his life. And he too relies upon this element of malice in his defense because the way he was tricked into saying anything about the king's title at all was that uh, one of the king's men an odious fellow named richard rich went into his cell and told him that he was sent by the king and that anything he said would not be used against him that the king earnestly wanted the bishop's spiritual counsel on whether he was doing the right thing or not and upon those terms john fisher ever the priest uh, gave him his candid response that he believed that the uh, king's uh, conduct uh, was sinful, erroneous, and he urged him to uh, repent. And it was that conversation, again, uh, Fisher's belief that it was more of a confessional type thing where uh, the king was earnestly seeking his true answer and he was promised immunity. It was that conversation that was the sole evidence presented at his trial. Fisher's defense, as he talked to the judges, was this, that he said, I pray you, my lords, consider that by all equity, justice, worldly honesty, and courteous dealing, I cannot, as the case stands, be directly charged with treason. Though I had spoken the words, indeed, the same being not spoken maliciously but in the way of advice and counsel when it was requested of me by the king himself. Same jury that sat on the trial of the Cartesian monks uh, convicted of Fisher of, of treason. And that led to the uh, third trial of Thomas More, the one that is the subject of Robert Bolt's A Man for All Seasons. Uh, More being a brilliant lawyer, compared the element of malice in the treason statute with the element of forcible entry in the uh, criminal statute and defended himself by saying that if you have an entry, but not with force, you may have a wrong, but not a violation of the forcible entry statute. And then he uses that analogy to defend himself and he says that, and if I had done so indeed, my lords, as Master Rich has sworn, the same Rich that went into um, Fisher's cell on the same day went into Thomas More's cell and then uh, had a conversation with him in the presence of two other men. And Rich will testify perjuriously at More's trial that More told him that Parliament had no authority to make the king head of the church in England. More denies ever saying this, but he says, even if I did, 
seeing that it was spoken, but in familiar secret talk, nothing affirming, and only putting of cases without other displeasant circumstances, it cannot just, justly be taken to be spoken maliciously. And where there is no malice, there can be no offense. And then he also says to Richard Rich that he had more uh, sorry for Rich's perjury than for his own peril. And so it took the jury about 15 minutes to convict more of treason. And I went into length in these three trials in the bloody summer of 1535 because I'm speaking to lawyers and I, uh, I'm, um, I'm just appalled by the, the lack of due process uh, that was contained in the trials of the monks of John Fisher and Thomas More. Certainly no discovery, certainly no right of appeal, but at the end of the day, an element of malice that is intentionally put into a statute by a legislative body for the purpose of protecting innocent speech is corruptly read out of the statute uh, by judges at a trial in order to achieve a foreordained uh, result at the bidding of a vengeful despot. It really is a is an aspect of the lives and death of Fisher and Moore that really uh, impacted me as a lawyer and as a judge. It's interesting that seven days before the trial of Thomas Moore, uh, the King had issued a circular uh, publication uh, commenting on the, the treason of Thomas Moore uh, even before any evidence was presented to a jury or the jury uh, ever convicted uh, Thomas Moore. So these two men had been imprisoned for over a year without the benefit of a trial and then uh, were subject to show trials that uh, had little to do with justice or due process. So that uh, is the legal aspect of uh, these lives and this book. I want to spend the last uh, few minutes talking about the last days of uh, Fisher and Moore before maybe opening uh, things up to questions. So after the uh, trials in June for Fisher and July for Moore, similar sentences were imposed on, on both men. And the sentence read as follows, you are to be drawn on a hurdle through the city of London to Tyburn, there to be hanged till you be half dead. And after that cut down, yet alive, your bowels to be taken out of your body and burned before you, your privy parts cut off, your head cut off, your body divided in four parts and your head and body to be set at such places as the king shall assign. A gruesome, brutal, brutal uh, verdict that was merciful, mercifully commuted by the king to simple beheading. We all know Moore's response. G.K. Chesterton refers to Moore as the man who died laughing. 
which resonates with Pope St. John Paul II's description of him. There was harmony between the natural and supernatural, which enabled him to live his intense public life with a simple humility marked by good humor, even at the moment of his execution. Moore asked his executioner for help up the steps of the scaffold, telling him he would see his own way down. He warned him of his short neck and asked him to strike clean. He said his beard had never offended the king. He kissed the executioner and told him, thou will give me this day greater benefit than ever any mortal man can be able to give me. And he recited Psalm 51, which begins, have mercy upon me, O God, and according to thy loving kindness. And of course, he uttered the famous line, I die the king's good servant and God's first. I doubt that any sentence uttered by any person of that time is more remembered than uh, today. But the last day of John Fisher's life is little known. In the early morning hours of June 22nd, around 5 a.m., the tower lieutenant came to Fisher with good news and bad news. The good news was that the king in his mercy had commuted his sentence from all that hanging, cutting, bowel removing, burning and dividing to simple beheading. The bad news was that it was going to take place in four hours. And Fisher's re reaction was to thank the guard and then said he would go back to sleep. His life of virtue led him to respond to the news of his imminent execution by taking a nap. And he got up shortly before nine o'clock, dressed in his finest clothes, told his servant that it was his marriage day and it behooves us to dress for the solemnity of the marriage. And then he did a random thing. He just took a, a copy of the New Testament off the shelf and went down to the courtyard to await the sheriffs for the trek uh, to his place of execution. And as he waited, he opened the New Testament at random and read from the book of John. He read this, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And he closed the book and remarked to those who were around, here is learning enough for me, even to my life's end. <clears throat> and at the scaffold, he told the gathered people that he died for Christ's holy Catholic Church. Ask God to save the king in the realm and pray that God may hold his holy hand over it and send the king good counsel. And then he prayed Psalm 31, which says, I am forgotten as a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. For I have heard the slander of many. Fear was on every side while they took counsel together against me. They devised to take away my life. But I trusted in thee, O Lord. I said, thou art my God. Then he stretched out his body. The headsman struck one blow at the outstretched body. And the head of the first canonized cardinal martyr, like the Baptist head he had long honored, had won its title to a place forever on the altar of sacrifice. And after he was beheaded, they stripped him and left him naked overnight, threw him in a shallow grave the next morning, and his head was set up on London Bridge. Two weeks later, it was taken down to make room for the 
head of Thomas More. And this is a difficult place to end, two heads on a pole, when all along it has been my hope to present these men to you in an attractive way as lives worthy of imitation. But maybe this is a good place to end for when all is said and done, we stand where more stood when warned that the wrath of the king is death. Is that all, my Lord, said more than in good faith, there is no more difference between your grace and me, but I, that I shall die today and you tomorrow. For a man may lose his head and have no harm. And I think that is a message for all seasons. Thank you. Beautiful, beautiful judge. You know, two sublime lives well rendered in your book uh you know one thing that you said that struck me in particular was that when uh, <clears throat> uh rich rich's uh perjury was being uh done in trial or before the king that thomas more said that he was sad more for rich's perjury than for his own peril so why would more think that that perjury was so bad. And what I'm really asking is to take us into one of your chapters. Your, your book uh, chapters are single word compelling things like conscience, truth, and the third is oath. So I assume Moore was referring to the fact that Rich was lying contrary to his oath to tell the truth. Yeah, and so to both Fisher and Moore, to speak against their conscience under oath had eternal consequences. And so Moore's daughter would say to him, can't you just cross your fingers? Can't you believe in your heart something else and, and sign this oath? And uh, Moore said he couldn't, that... Uh, uh, testifying falsely, falsely jeopardized his eternal soul. And it, um, it's a profound viewpoint of life. Both uh, Moore and Fisher throughout their lives would maintain an understanding of their lives that this was, this was prelude to an eternal life. Um, and what you believe and said on earth matters to your eternal destiny and in uh in heaven and so it was unthinkable to them uh to to testify or sign an oath inconsistent with their true belief what's remarkable about that bill is uh is in in in, in my course of conduct as a judge I've, I've seen and administered and actually taken uh, hundreds perhaps thousand oaths and um, the seriousness which these men approached oath-taking and testimony given is profound. When I looked at the North Carolina statute uh, that speaks to the giving and taking of an oath, it references this very same attitude that there's an omniscient, omnipotent God who rewards truth-telling and punishes falsehood. And that's in our modern-day statutes. That's, you know, would that our wit the witnesses that appear in our 
cases had that uh, serious an attitude, that eternal uh, perspective, uh, would that we in our relationships with each other would take the, uh, the necessity of integrity and truth-telling to heart. Uh, I, think, I think it would profoundly impact the world we live in. I mean, I think it's interesting that, you know, the whole judicial system is built on a premise of this integrity and of an, obli uh, an obligation to something beyond yourself. So you, you swear to it because you're responsible to it. And for most people, that's God, uh, of course. But I just think it's interesting that our whole Western system of justice couldn't really function without this kind of deep integrity as, as you know, constitutive of the whole process. And that's also why it's so mind-blowing that Cromwell would instruct a jury what verdict to bring in. I just think that's, and, it, and when that breaks down, the whole system breaks down and you will have injustice which you had in those cases. Yeah, and, and so as a former trial attorney, current judge, I love jury trials. I believe uh, passionately in that institution. And you mentioned that the tinkering that we do, uh, even with the, uh, with the placement of where the jury box is in a, in a, in a courtroom, all of that, is to make this profound search for truth uh, more meaningful, more effective. But at the end of the day, it, uh, it depends for its uh, validity on the willingness of that witness, put their hand on the Bible, raise their other hand and swear to, to the truth. Uh, so help them God. And, um, and, and yes, it, it uh, it, it, it speaks to us over the centuries that these men gave up everything rather than uh, to violate that oath. And I'll, and I'll add this, Bill, it, uh, these, these were happy, these were happy men who uh, went to their death, believing that they would meet their judges and their prosecutors and their um, uh, enemies in the next life and that they would be married with them uh, together. And it was this um, sense that they had a faith in something they couldn't see. They had a hope that didn't depend upon appearances. And they had a love that was uh, that was based in eternal things. And it actually affected their whole personas. These were, joyful, happy men who uh, witnessed the truth in their own day and are witnesses to truth 500 years later. Yeah, I know that uh, people, I sh I'm sure some people, I'm sure most people listening know Thomas More. For anybody who just happened to get on, I mean, he was one of the men of Europe. You know, he was, along with Erasmus, is one of the great minds of Europe. So people were naturally paying attention to what happened to him. I think it's interesting, Bob, that uh, John Fisher was also 
one of those men, although many people nowadays haven't heard of him, because as you as you mentioned, he was chancellor of Cambridge University. Uh, he founded one or two colleges there, and he was elected or made chancellor for life of one of the, and also enjoyed the esteem of Erasmus and many others. But I, I, I am fascinated and grateful that you <clears throat> brought him into this book because I hope everybody listening has seen the film, uh, A Man for All Seasons, where you can get to know more to some extent, although you point out where it's a, the, port the portrayal's a little bit defective, but it's still pretty good. But very few people have ever heard of Fisher, and he's uh, one of the great, uh, well, one of the great saints and one of the great minds in, in uh, Western history. Yeah, he was uh, considered the best preacher uh, of his day for 10 years in a row, annually reelected as, uh, as uh, chancellor of Cambridge. And then they just gave up and, and made him chancellor uh, for life. He actually died as the chancellor of Cambridge University. <clears throat> In the weeks leading up to his death, there were some amendments to the charter that had to be signed by the chancellor. And they actually brought those scrolls to his cell, figuring he would just sign them to, to be done with it. But he, he made them stay while he perused every line, every word, and only when he was satisfied that it was in the best interests of Cambridge did he sign off on it. And so the, these were men that didn't shirk the work. I mean, they, part of the, uh, the model that I think they are for us is they, they weren't flippant in their opposition. They, they studied for years, prayed hard. Uh, but once they became firmly convinced, they were able to live their lives consistent with their convictions. And that, that model, I think, is a wonderful one for lawyers. Uh, do the work, uh, seek the truth, and then live uh, in accordance with it. Well, let me, uh, let me ask uh, Nick if uh, you have any questions you would like to bring in for Judge Conrad. Yeah, this has been a great discussion. Um, just a quick reminder uh, for the audience, if you'd like to ask a question, please uh, send that in via the chat or the Q&A chat. We have one question and it is, oh, and another one just popped up, recommended biographies and primary sources that you recommend or that you may have used in your research. What a great question. There is a bibliography in the, in the book. I think the... Um, the best biography of Moore that I read was by a professor at the University of uh, Dallas uh, named Gerald Wegemer. And he wrote a biography, biography called Portrait of Courage. Peter Ackroyd has a great biography of Moore, as does John Guy. Um, and there's some older ones that are great as well. The best biography that I read of uh, John Fisher was by an author named Michael Macklem, M-A-C-K-L-E-M. And his book is titled uh, God Have Mercy. And it's, it's great. Hey, Nick, let me say, let me say a word before you give the next question about the organization of the judge's book. 
So obviously for Christians, we're in Holy Week, and there's some very interesting things Judge Conrad has at the end about some of the prayers that Moore and Fisher used, uh, said, or wrote, or prepared for others. And uh, that's a great resource for you. I mean, this book is, I wish we had done this a few weeks ago because this book is a great resource for uh, for Holy Week. Okay, Nick, you got another question? Yeah, great point. Um, this question is about, um, you, Judge, you spoke about the informed consciences of Fisher and Moore. Um, the questioner says, in 1521, before the Diet at Worms, Martin Luther declared that going against conscience was neither right nor safe. In your research, did you find whether this appeal to conscience arose at that time, or was it a long-standing or traditional approach to these kinds of questions? You know, the whole, um, what a great question um, in uh, added history, but the whole history of England involved this uh, uh, this struggle uh, to understand issues uh, between church and church and state, and and go back to Magna Corda, and leaders of England are wrestling with that uh, the role of the king, the role of the church, and you know certainly go back to uh, Thomas. Uh, Beckett and his uh, his issues with uh, Henry II. And so I think in the 16th century, um, the nations are fumbling towards an understanding of church-state relationship far short of our own understanding of religious liberty and, um, <clears throat> and freedom. Uh, but struggle, struggling uh, towards it. And it, uh, it's a profound thing that under the Tudor kings, uh, both Catholic and Protestant, that uh, religious dissenters uh, were uh, executed uh, at such uh, astronomical rates. I think uh, there, there are some estimates that over 50,000 people lost their lives because of their uh, willingness to follow their conscience in religious matters uh, when it went against the, uh, the religion of the king then in, then in power. And so um, there's a sense uh, in Fisher and Moore that there is objective truth, that it's discoverable, and that one has a duty to pursue that truth uh, but but once there's an understanding of what that truth is, right or wrong, as suggested in the question, it it would be wrong to go against that uh, understanding of truth. And and so Fisher and Moore are on the threshold of a Renaissance period in the world. Uh, and there's much about the new learning that they supported and, and embraced, but they're anchored into the uh, truths that have been found to be true over the centuries and millennia. And that's an interesting balance uh, that those men achieved in that day. Great. Hey, well, Judge, do you have any well, I just, I just wondered, uh, Judge Conrad, why did you uh, include Fisher? What, what led you to include, I mean, 
I understand it. It makes sense. But you're one of the few, if maybe the only one who's ever done it. You know, I had a life, an adult lifetime admiration for Moore and a growing understanding of Fisher's uh, importance in that day. And a sense that in this storytelling mode that I was in, believing that a good story can communicate powerfully uh, given truths, there were men of the same period wrestling with the same issue, but they were completely different. You know, Moore is the, um, the witty, brilliant public man and, and Fisher is this ascetic, studious priest. Um, and yet they wind up in the same place holding the same courageous convictions uh, in a way that together I thought made a more compelling story. So for instance, if you were more of an introvert, if you were more scholarly, if you didn't care about the political affairs of the world, Fisher might speak to you in a way that Moore never did. And my own personality and, and public career and, and sense of big family and love of people, Moore speaks to me uh, more naturally where I learn more about the right path through my study of the discipline and uh, the courage of John Fisher, a man who's very different from me. So presenting these two personalities at the same time in the same era was, was something that really appealed to me. Thank you, Judge. Nick, are we about out of time? That's great. We're at three o'clock. Um, so I'll just offer Bill, unless you have any closing uh, thoughts to offer. The one thought I'd have is it's a great book. Get a hold of a copy. That's a good note to end on. Well, thank you both very much. On behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to offer our sincere thanks for uh, your time, your expertise, Judge Conrad, for, for your time in, in putting together this book and presenting on it here today. Thank you to our audience, of course, for calling in and your great questions. Keep an eye on your e email and our website for announcements about upcoming events like this one. Um, and in the meantime, check out the book. Until that next event, we are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.